Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying healthy and happy. My guest today joins me via Zoom, but you've been listening to him via records and the radio for decades. As Billy Joel's drummer from 1976 to 2003, he's credited as drummer on records with sales, and get this, of over 150 million copies. Do you love Just The Way You Are? Well, that's Liberty DeVito. How about She's Always a Woman? Only the good die young. You may be right or it's still rock and roll to me. Well, that's all Liberty DeVito. He's what they call a New York City style drummer, solid and powerful. He's also the author of a new memoir, Liberty, Life, Billy, and the Pursuit of Happiness, available wherever you buy fine books. It details not only the good times with Billy Joel, but also the bad leading up to their split in 2006. Now, later in the show, I ask Liberty about how his relations with the singer disintegrated and how they buried the hatchet after 15 years. We start, though, by talking about something we're all missing these days. That's live music. There's no live music right now. We're not able to go out and see bands play. Do you have a special moment either of yourself on stage or from a concert that you went to see uh, that is particularly memorable that you would think about now that we can't really go see any live music? Well, you know, it's, it's funny because I'm, I'm just a drummer that happened to play with Billy Joel and, you know, never took lessons or anything like that. And the, the excitement that I get is from the audience. You know, that really gets me excited. And uh, so there's been so many audiences that have, you know, got me to that level. But it's funny because I, I'm down right now in my mother-in-law's basement where my drums are stored. And um, sometimes I'll sit down behind the drum set and I'll play. My wife will go, go downstairs and play a little bit. And I'll go down and I'll play for about 10 minutes. And then I'm like, you know what? I need other people to play with. I, I'm that kind of drummer that just goes flashy all around the drum kit. You know, well, I really do miss that not playing live it's it's a drag you know do you ever think back to uh your grade six teacher who told you because you couldn't do the buzz roll in star spangled banner that you should just give it up you'll never be a drummer forget about this did that make you work harder to play the drums and just to show him up or what did that do to your psyche well it, it, i was very discouraged I was very discouraged when he said that because I, I loved music before I loved the drums. Right. The drums just so happened uh, to, to be in my life. Uh, I asked my dad later on in life why the drums. And, and he said, because they didn't make Prozac when you were a kid, so we got you a drum. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, he, he discouraged me. And, and I think that's really cruel that what he did. I mean, uh, to discourage a kid from having a dream but um, but I continued to listen to music, and then it was when the Beatles came on the Ed Sullivan Show. That was that that's when I pointed at the TV and I said, "I want to do that." You know, screw the buzz roll. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you've actually recorded with Paul McCartney, so in some yeah. way you you came full circle. To, and Ringo was there too, right? I did. Um, I um, the the song that we did actually, Paul's putting out uh, a, an album now of unreleased stuff. Mm. Uh, and the song that I did was on a, an EP that he released in England, and I believe it's going to be on this album uh, when it comes out. And but, does it blow your mind that it says, you know, 
players on the record, uh, Paul McCartney, vocals and bass, and then you go down Liberty DeVito on drums. That must blow your mind. Go down. When I read the credits, it's like the, the, the thing, the way it came out on Paul's thing was it, it, the song is called It's a Beautiful Night. And it, it uh, goes through all the, uh, the evolution of the song. And there's one part where he's just playing it on a piano. And then there's another part, you know, and, and it's actually got Ringo playing it too. So one section says, uh, uh, piano and vocal, Paul McCartney, drums, Ringo Starr. And then you look down at the next one and it says, piano and vocal, Paul McCartney, drums, Liberty DeVille. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, but it's, there's nothing like, uh, you know, piano, uh, I mean, uh, drums, Liberty DeVito, and vocal and piano, Billy Joel. That, yeah. that. Well, we're, we're, we're working our way there because there's a couple of things. So your dad tried to discourage you from becoming a musician. He thought, essentially, that musicians were bums, right? He said, you're not going to make any money. Why are you even bothering with this? But you did. You pushed through that. And right. just out of high school, you auditioned for Ted Nugent and the Amboy Dukes. Uh, you played with Mitch Ryder on the road for six weeks, right out of high school. You're 16, 17 years old, something like that. And tell me about what that was like, because I don't think you were, uh, you know, flying in jets around the U.S. playing with Mitch <laughs> Ryder. As amazing as he was, that was the, the years where you would be in a bus, right? Uh, like a, a school bus almost. Well, yeah, you're talking about, bus like uh, a passenger bus that you know you want to go downtown yeah you take this bus and yeah uh i say in the book uh, i talk about how my pea coat was my pillow and you just stretched out across the seats you know but every the the thing that the reason why i wrote the book was because there's so many um videos out there of of how to learn how to play the drums and uh, you know um uh, my book is about how i did it you know, uh, all the, the steps and what happened. It's, it's a book about life. You're sitting in that chair because your life led you there. Right. You know, I played with Billy Joel because my life led me there. I took the road that, that was best suited for me. You know, uh, I, I didn't join a, a jazz band because I really can't play jazz. I just kept playing rock and roll. And there's a lot of people that, out there that are like me. Yeah. So and we found each other. And it was great. It's been great. You're listening to my interview with the author of Liberty, Life, Billy, and the Pursuit of Happiness. That's Liberty DeVito. And those shows with Mitch Ryder, I'm, I'm a little obsessed with Mitch Ryder. I love those old records. Uh, th those shows, I've seen some old videos and things. Those shows were wild. Yeah. Yeah. Well, an incredible in, performer. Well, in, in the book, um, I talk about right after I did the first show with Mitch and, and how... I was introduced to him, and it's uh, it's classic. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll have to pick up the book, which is called Liberty, Life, Billy, and the Pursuit of Happiness. Yeah. Um, so you you must have been thinking about playing drums professionally at that time. Um, what was the big step that pushed you from, you know, doing some gigs with Mitch Ryder, which must have been fun, but you were subbing in for a drummer who was ill and it was probably six, seven weeks. You know, you're not making yeah. a living doing that. When was no. it that you said, oh, well, this is now what I do professionally? Well, believe it or not, I had, um, uh, I had been playing weddings. And um, at the time I was getting union scale, I joined the union to play the weddings. And um, from, I, I got so tired of the weddings, but I learned the most drumming wise 
from these weddings because I had to play all different ethnic music and stuff like that. But when I left, I played with a top 40 band with a couple of guys that were local in the town I lived in. And we were playing six nights and one afternoon. We had one night off. Wow. When, but I played with the original band that became Billy Joel's band with Topper. And uh, so we played that one night that I had off. And one night I was just burned out and I was sitting on stage. I put one hand on my snare drum and one hand on my floor tom. And I said, well, I guess this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> and then how does Billy Joel come into this picture? You're playing with Topper. Uh, you had met him before, but how did you end up becoming part of the band and, and, and part Topper, I guess, becoming his band? Well, we all got in because uh, Doug Stegmeyer was the, um, the first one to be hired by Billy on the Street Life Serenader tour. And then after that tour, Billy wanted to move back to New York and make a new album, the album that eventually became Turnstiles. And he wanted a New York style drummer. And Doug said, well, you know the guy. You know, it meant me because we had played together in the same club. And um, as we were recording it, Billy would say, well, we need some guitars on this, you know? And then we said, well, we know guitar players. And that's how Topper eventually became the Billy Joel band. You know, Actually, I, like, I like to think of it as, as Topper got a good singer and, and songwriter and piano player. Right, band. right. Now, how did, what did he mean when he said, I need a New York style drummer? What does that mean? A hard hitter, um, aggressive, you know, New York is very aggressive. You know, it's funny when I played with Stevie Nicks, uh, I played with her for six months, and um, the the guys from California were always like, "Oh, come on, you got to lay back. You got to, you know, they're into this whole laid back thing." And 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 I play a certain way, and it wasn't until we played Saturday Night Live that the bass player, uh, 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 Wizard, he was his name. He was in a band called Mother's Finest. He looked around Saturday Night Live and saw how fast things were changing. The scenes changed, the actors, everything changed, and he goes. Wow, now I know why you play like you do. Everybody's like you in New York. That's amazing. I love that. Yeah. Now, you played with Billy Joel from 1976 to 2003. That is a very long time. And you were there for that big leap. There's always that big leap, right, where you, you're playing in clubs uh, from Topper, playing seven shows a week, you know, with only one night off. And then all of a sudden you're playing in arenas. And in fact, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm Zooming you from Toronto right now. And just down I know the street exactly is, what is Maple Leaf Gardens. Yeah, your first Park arena Park. show, right? That was the first one. And we played sideways. Um, you know, usually we play, you play from the end, like when, when you come out of the dressing rooms and the, the hockey guys come out and stuff like that. We played sideways because we didn't think we were going to do well. And everybody was watching it because it was a transformation from the theaters to arenas. And it, it was very exciting to do it, you know? I mean, uh, and uh, Toronto was very, a great place to play, you know, as far as everything goes. <laughs> Here we talk about that leap when the band became really famous with the release of the Stranger album. They leapt from playing clubs into playing arenas. This is what he had to say about that. Well, the whole thing was, you know, Billy is, it was like talks to the audience when we were playing in theaters. He, he, before New York State of Mind, he lit up a cigarette yeah, yeah. and you 
talk about what it's like. A cockroach comes by and says, get off my back if you try to step on him. Something. Was that going to be able to translate to an arena? That was the big question. Was, was the little skits in between the songs going to be able to translate in an arena? And uh, yeah, and I found myself like, I found myself when I played in a club, you played this hard. And then when you played in a theater, the ceiling got a little higher and you could play this hard. And then you're playing arena and whoa, the ceiling's real high. Right. And I hope the vibe, the feeling that, you know, the guy in the back row of an arena, he paid the same amount of money as the person in the front row. He needs to see a show, you know? So I, I really became my arms wailing all over the place. And, you know, I, I was called a, a, a fire hose on high, you know, as my arms looked like <laughs> an overactive orangutan was one of my favorites. <laughs> but it's all about the show, right? It's about the music and the show. It's all about the music and the show. That's it. Yeah. You can stay home and listen to a record. That's right. And if, you, if you don't see anything, you know, it's funny because I recently had seen the, uh, the Foo Fighters. I was invited by them because they're big fans and, and I stood on the side of the stage and um, they play so aggressively like it's the last time they're ever going to play. They don't care if they die after the show is over. They give it their all. And I remember that that's what we did with Billy. We gave it our all. You know, it was like, this could be the last time we ever play. If we don't make it here, we're not going to come back again. Right. You know, and we built those audiences. Well, when we that in Toronto, um, I forget the name of the hall. Oh, uh, probably Massey Hall. Massey Hall, that's yeah. it. That's it. Yeah. yeah, Massey Hall is the sort of intermediate step, right? So right. there's the clubs, Massey, or the Danforth Music Hall, probably, then Massey Hall, and then Maple Leaf Gardens, which it, or is gone now, but um, it's a big grocery store now. But oh, really, it, it was for many years. Elvis played there. I mean, everybody played there. So. Yeah. Uh, the Beatles, everybody played at that place. Uh, but now uh, it's the biggest grocery store in the country, probably. It's enormous. Well, I wonder if you could still play in the aisle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you say in the movie Hired Gun, if Billy is the father of those songs, I'm at least the uncle. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I always thought of it as, as Ringo was in a, in a band called The Beatles. Everything was divvied up equally, you know, when the records came out, except the publishing. Um, I was in a band that had the lead singer's name on it, Billy Joel. He was signed. He was signed to the label. Now, when we went in the studio, I would make up my drum parts just like Ringo would make up his drum parts. And so what is the difference from what I did to what Ringo did? It's we did exactly the same thing. You know, and but Ringo is noted as being a part of those songs. You know, he's Ringo. He's the drummer in the Beatles. You know, I'm in the Beatles. Oh, did Billy tell you what to play? That's the question you get all the time. No, he didn't. <laughs> you know, sometimes he had something in his head that he wanted me to play. But most of the times we all made up our own stuff, our own parts. Well, there's there's I, I can hear uh, as I'm sitting here talking to you um in only the good die young there's that great thing that that is so much a part of the song right it, it's a riff it's like a guitar riff it's like uh anything it is part of the song and you kind of can't imagine the song without that part well you know it was originally a reggae song was it only the good die young yeah i cannot <laughs> imagine that i can't oh, hear it. Yeah. 
it, it, it was terrible. That's the way I heard it first. We were in Knoxville, Tennessee, and me and the sound guy, Brian Ruggles, left for two days to join the circus. They were playing in town, too, you know. So we stayed with them for two days. I came back, and Richie Kanonik was running up to me, and he says, you got to hear the song that Billy wrote. And when he played it, he played it for me on a guitar, and it was like a reggae thing. Yeah. And, and did you say, uh, let's work on that? <laughs> the closest you've ever been to Jamaica is the Jamaica train station where the Long Island Railroad stops. <laughs> You're listening to my interview with the author of Liberty, Life, Billy, and the Pursuit of Happiness. That's Liberty DeVito. That's a song, though, that got banned and, and kind of caused a, a few problems for the band. Do you remember that happening that time? Well, it was banned by um, the, the Catholic diocese. And, uh, and the, the funny part is, is that when you tell a teenager or a young person that you can't do something, they want to know more about it. Yeah, yeah. So the, the song was falling off the charts. So, um, yeah, after that came out that it was banned, it took off like crazy, you know? Uh, Billy always says that he puts a couple of bucks in the uh, envelope on Sunday. <laughs> Thank you. A couple of extra bucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So. Um, everybody from the Muppets to Bernadette Peters to the cast of Glee to whoever else. I mean, I, I, the list is as long as my arm has covered right. New York State of Mind. Um, yes. That song I hear was written a little differently than some of the other songs. Yeah. Richie, uh, I mean, uh, Billy uh, wrote it and, and wrote the lyrics and the, and the keyboard part at the same time. Just it took him like ten minutes to write the song. So he just thought like he was noodling away at the piano, and that it just started to happen. Just started to happen, and um, you know he brought it in, and it was great. And that was the introduction uh, when when Richard Canada came into the studio. We had just recorded "Angry Young Man," and we were listening back to it. And Richie playing saxophone said, "Where, where am I going to fit in this band? This is insane." <laughs> and then Billy said. Let me play you this song. And he played him New York State of Mind. And it was like, that was, he was a shoe in right then and there. You know, you talk about creating parts, like the part to um, Still Rock and Roll and Me, the sax solo. Yeah. Richie, Billy and Phil Ramone, our producer, said to Richie, we want you to play something that people will remember 20 years from now. It's been over 40 years now, and they still remember that, you know? That's how good that was. We start this segment by talking about what it's like to walk into a bar or a restaurant or get into a cab. Even though we're not doing as much of that these days as we used to, we'll get back to it when things get back to normal. But I asked him, what's it like to do any of those things and hear one of your songs playing on the PA system? This is what he had to say. Oh, it's pretty exciting. I mean, you know, it's funny. You get jaded after a while because when when Turnstiles first came out and I'd be driving in my car, and the song would come on. I'd pull the car over to the side of the road, turn it up all the way. Now, if I get to my house before the song's over, I turn the car off, go inside. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that You May Be Right was going to be a huge hit? Um, I guess, because it was kind of like the Rolling Stones, you know? So we kind of figured it would be. And that is probably one of my most hated songs, because if, if I have to sit in with a band, if they know I'm there, and they go, could you sit in with us? We'll do a Billy song. Okay, what song do you want to do? We'll listen to you, you may be right. Yeah, because <laughs> you know? it's a rocker, right? That's the one yeah. that they... Uh, well, and, you know, and you, Columbia you said, Records said, uh, you guys have a better Rolling Stones song on your album than they do on their album. Yes, 
Yes, they were signed to Columbia at that time. <laughs> you know, yeah, you said uh, something about um, uh, hearing the song. Yeah. The greatest thing I've ever heard was the Just the Way You Are beat and rhythm to the Simpsons theme song. <laughs> it's, uh, it's at the end of one of the Simpsons episodes. <laughs> It, once you've made it to The Simpsons, that's it. You're immortal. That show is never going to die. So, <laughs> Yeah. Um, it's Still Rock and Roll to me was a huge hit. But yeah. it was kind of a response to the critics, right? It was Billy's way of, of sort of taking a little poke at them, wasn't it? Yeah, it was Billy's first number one single and um, gold single. And uh, I, I think in the beginning, many, many years before he became famous, he used to review shows. Right. So he knows that the reviewer is getting free tickets, coming in for free, he's really being catered to. Now, Billy didn't mind if the reviewer didn't like the music, mm -hmm. but when they attacked him personally, then he, he would uh, do this thing where if we play two nights in a row in the same arena, the, the reviewer would come out the next morning after the first night, and he would take the newspaper up on stage, and he would review the reviewer. <laughs> Just tear him apart. <laughs> the crowd would cheer. Ah, yeah. well, you got fifty thousand Billy fans in the audience. <laughs> well, it, it's it's interesting to me that um, I've seen you play with Billy Joel a couple of times. I think it was nineteen eighty six at Maple Leaf Gardens, uh, and then probably in like nineteen ninety two. I think ninety two or ninety three, yeah. and both those shows made me think. Uh, and we, we talked about this a little bit earlier, about that like step up from playing clubs to, to arenas, um, yeah. that the shows were kind of the same. He still talked to the audience like there was 150 people there and not 50,000 people. Like the, right. the shows felt like club shows almost. It yeah. didn't feel like a big fist in the air rock and roll show where the, the, the band was a little bit distanced from the audience. They had a more personal feel. Yeah, well, we, we had gone from the clubs to the arenas, and we had been playing arenas for a, a few years. And uh, one gig that we did was the Hard Rock um, uh, in uh, Las Vegas. Mm. And it's a small place. But, you know, as a matter of fact, they had to build extensions on the stage to fit everything on there. And, uh, you know, so the lights were just like little trees and stuff <laughs> like that. The whole lighting. But after that show was over, the people, the, the crowd went nuts. And I remember a lighting designer coming up and said, you know what's great about you guys? You're still a club band, you know, because we, we, we fit right in there, yep. you know. You're listening to my interview with the author of Liberty, Life, Billy, and the Pursuit of Happiness. His name is Liberty DeVito. The shows in Russia must have felt a little different than uh, the, the club shows and anything else. I mean, the, the audiences were big. They were not accustomed to rock and roll. I think Elton John had gone through before, but only with a piano. You were doing a full-on band right. show, a big American rock show for them. Um, what were those? How did that feel? Like, what was that like? Well, the whole vibe of going over there was amazing because, you know, we're the kids that used to hide under the desk because they were going to drop bombs on us and they were going to bury us. Khrushchev yeah. banging you on the, you know, we'll, we'll bury you, you know. And uh, so I was a bit nervous going over there, especially having the name Liberty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, so, uh, but when we first got there and we started to play, there was no crowd reaction because 
you could, the only way you could buy tickets is if you were in the party, you know? Right. Oh, there was people holding their ears and, and, uh, you know, things like that. And Billy got really nervous. I mean, I could still see his face looking at me going, we're dead, we're dead. <laughs> Well, you had been on the road for almost a year leading up to that, right? I mean, it wasn't oh. like you were like you had had this big break and you were coming back. I mean, you must have been exhausted. Uh, he paid for most of the tour himself, from what I've read. Um, so that oh. must have been a wait. Oh, he paid for everything. Yeah, I got like maybe twenty five hundred dollars a show, and they were paid him in rubles, which is which was worthless outside of Russia. Yeah. So uh, I think all that money went to. Uh, the Chernobyl people. Um, so uh, yeah, it, but it was a thrill. It was a thrill to actually meet these people that we were afraid of for so long, you know, and the song Leningrad on um, Stormfront album, it really tells it all. You know, we never knew what friends we had till we came to Leningrad. Right. Now you have written this book uh, and it has a foreword by Billy Joel a few years ago, that probably might not have happened. And so no. let's, I mean, you've talked about this. I'm not, I'm not opening a wound here. I don't think that you haven't talked about, but at a certain point, um, things changed in your relationship around 2003 with Billy Joel. And all of a sudden you found yourself outside the circle. Um, was, I mean, it must've been painful. It must've also been fam- painful because it would have been fairly public as well, which probably didn't, uh, make it any easier for you. No, it was very public. Um, you know, and then when people came to see the shows and I wasn't there, you know, I, I'd get all these emails and all this, this kind of stuff, like what happened, what happened? And when you don't know what happened, it's really hard. Like I, I didn't know what, happen uh but as the years go by and you get older and you know i I have four children now and and uh three of them are in their 30s and one's going to turn one just turned 40 and i have another one that's three years old so (laughs) wait wait a minute billy Billy has one what were you thinking (laughs) billy has one that's in his in her 30s and he's got two that are under five Wow. You know, wow. so, you know, I thought like, let me, let me look back and see why he did what he did. Uh, let me try to understand his position. You know, you only go from your position, you know, like, uh, Oh, why did he do that? Oh, he should have never did that to me. He did well, why did he do that? I never asked that question. Right. So when I did ask that question, I got the answer that I, I kind of figured that it's Billy. This is, it was his, it's his career. You know, when it's your career, it's like, you got to make changes. And, and when you think about it, every album he changed. Mm-hmm. And up to that point for 30 years, I was the only one that was there all the time. You know, so it was time for a change for him. In this segment, I begin by asking Liberty who joined me via zoom If in the days, weeks, and months leading up to the split with Billy Joel after so many decades, if he should have known something was going on, this is what he had to say. I would have never thought that it would have ended the way it did. But now now that I look back, I can see that why it did. And um, uh, when I look back at those things, I I know that he was going through different... uh, periods in his in his life where he was getting really screwed by an old manager 
you know, divorces, all that kind of stuff. You just think that because he has his records, he's got more money than he knows what to do with, you know, which isn't true. He's paying all the bills on the road. I'm just going as the drummer, you know? Right. I wanted to be part of what he, what he was, you know, have an equal part of what he was. Yeah, that would have been great. But would I have been able to take that same thing that he had to do, you know, every interview, every, every pay for everything, every guy that's on the road with us, where he's renting it, every truck, every light, everything, you know, that's a big nut to crack. It is. And I don't think people understand uh, the, the weight that comes along with that. You're essentially running a corporation. Uh, right. only most musicians aren't very good with money. So, you know, you're, you're in charge of this big company, but you're probably uh, ill-equipped, really, ultimately, to, to be in that position. So you trust other people, and other people aren't always trustworthy. Exactly. They can see that uh, you don't know what's going on, and they take a little from here and a little from there, you know? Just that some people take too much. They should have stopped a long time ago. <laughs> now, the, the intro that he wrote for your book is really lovely. And uh, he says here, uh, we were as much a family unit as any other relationships we had formed during our lives. And like other families, we inflicted hurts and wounds on each other, never intending to cause lasting scars. Reading this book has brought a flood of warm memories that I had long since forgotten and which I now regret having allowed to lapse into shrouded history. And it goes on like that and, and with high praise for you. Uh, when you read that, how did it make you feel? I teared up. I came running out of the room. Because he sent it to me in an email. And I came running out of the room and I told my wife, I, I said, I, you got to read this. I can't believe it. You know, I mean, you know, it, it, it justifies and, and legitimizes me and what I did for him and what we did as a band, me, Richie Canada, Russell Javers, David Brown and Doug Stegmaier, you know, that, that we were that band that took him for the ride. And, uh, you know, there's more of what in the, in, in the forward, too, that, that he really says really kind things. And now, uh, is the relationship patched between the two of you? Well, yeah. I mean, we email each other all the time. You know, we still have a lot in common. I mean, when we were together, we, we both got divorced at the same time from our first wives. Then we married girls from California almost at the same time. And then we had children. And then he, he had a child and then they grew up and we've been through all this stuff and then 15 years without seeing each other. And then he got married again and I got married again <laughs> and we both have little children now. You know, <laughs> it's like, wow, we really run the, uh, you know, the parallel lines. You're listening to my interview with Liberty DeVito, the author of the memoir, Liberty, Life, Billy and the Pursuit of Happiness. What was it then that inspired you to write the book? Because I would imagine that when you started writing the book, you didn't have the foreword from Billy Joel. You didn't have uh, his cooperation, whatever, whatever that might mean. Uh, what inspired you to, to sit down and put pen to paper? I was just writing down uh, my history you know, uh, for my children to have. My dad did it, he wrote, uh, wrote a book, but he had things in there that, that really got people mad because my dad the world, was a World War II veteran. Right. You know, he died when he was 91 years old and he's writing his book when he's in his 80s and he's telling everything about everybody. He hated this one uh, woman that my brother was married to, you know. Ah, she stunk, she couldn't cook or nothing like that. You know, so like, 
wow, I don't think I can do that, <laughs> you know. So, um, yeah, there was, and there was some, because uh, I was writing it for like 15 years, just every time I would put it away and then I'd take it out again because somebody would say, you know, why don't you write a book? Ah, let me try again, you know. There were some like things that, wow, I really shouldn't say that about that person, you know, <laughs> because I'm different now. I'm older, you know, you're, hopefully you're wiser when you get older, you know, and um, so things changed. And when I rewrote it, uh, someone said, I, my friend Simon said, uh, I think you got something here. <laughs> you know? well, and then, it... I, then I sent it to Billy, you know, and um, he said, yeah, okay, cool. Is, <laughs> it as, is it as exciting to have this book come out as it is to have a new record come out? It's a different thing, I know, uh, but this is something new for you. Let me tell you something, um, Richard. I never took lessons and I, I play on one of the top five albums ever sold i barely made it out of high school and now i have a book out <laughs> i am the the living example that you can do it right. you were the american dream right there I, I am the american dream yes i am even though we're in a nightmare right now but <laughs> One final question. So behind you, uh, your book there is on a drum. Yes. Uh, are, are those drums that might have been used to play on any of these records? Is this something, is this a famous set of drums behind you? No, this is not a famous set of drums. The famous set of drums are on that side of this. <laughs> this you know, like actually the last, they're in cases, but the last drums that I use with Billy are in cases on that side. Right. Yeah. Uh, Liberty, what a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for this. Well, thank you. This is wonderful. And uh, I'm, I'm excited that you have the book coming out. I think people are going to love it. And more than that, I'm excited that there is a, a healing here, that you've patched things up with Billy Joel. That's going to just make you feel better and make you feel better about the book and just the whole thing. Yeah, well, I, I have a friend, uh, my friend Leslie, who I went to high school with, when she found out that, that we patched, uh, you know, that we buried the hatchet, she said, you know, it's really nice for all us fans that loved that music all those years to know that it didn't end the way we thought it was going to end, you know, just like you guys being mad at each other and stuff like that. It's like, now we're friends again, you know? So it's great. Well, that's it for my interview with Liberty DeVito. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, check out his new book, Liberty, Life, Billy, and the Pursuit of Happiness, wherever you buy fine books.